Welcome to Women Igniting Change, the place to be for women leaders and decision makers who are passionate about changing the world and determined to act. I'm your host, Robin Jorgensen, former corporate executive, global speaker, and founder and CEO of Women Igniting Change. Let's dive in. Hey, hey, changemakers, welcome back to the Women Igniting Change podcast. I am your host, Robin Jorgensen, and today I have with me Sue Ludwig. Sue is a sought-after speaker, consultant, and writer. She is a licensed occupational therapist and certified neonatal therapist, and she is the president and founder of the National Association of Neonatal Therapists, NANT for short, N-A-N-T, where she uses a blend of clinical expertise, innovation, and leadership to support the advancement of this specialized field on a global scale. Sue is the media expert in neonatal therapy for the American Occupational Therapy Association, and she has an award-winning book that came out last year called Tiny Humans, Big Lessons, How the NICU Taught Me to Live with Energy, Intention, and Purpose. Sue, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Robin. I'm so excited to see you and so excited to be here with your listeners. I know, I know. Yeah, I'm excited to dive into this. So can you share with us what inspired you to become a neonatal therapist to begin with and then later founding NANT? Yeah, so I'm an occupational therapist, like you said, and by education and training. And I had always been interested in the NICU starting in college because I had some nieces and nephews that were born prematurely. And so I saw sort of what that journey looked like for them. Uh, And then I was able to, on my internships in college, able to, you know, get a little more glimpse of what it looked like to be an OT with babies in the NICU. And I still was interested in it. And, but it wasn't my first job. It's hard to get into, uh, you know, right out of school because it's a specialized area, of course. And so uh, eventually I got a chance to quote, be the backup therapist in the NICU at the hospital that I was working in. And once I was over being completely afraid <laughs> um, of not knowing, you know, it's a whole new world in there and, and super tiny babies and fragile humans. Uh, right. but, uh, but I, I fell in love with them. I just, there's something about just the precious innocence of the babies in that unit and their families and the kind of raw experience that they're all having and, and being able to bring, you know, my therapy lens to that world was really exciting. And I I just could feel the uh, potential for the alignment and purpose of what I wanted to do uh, in that little unit. So I, I just fell in love with the space. Um, right off the bat. And then what led you to create NANT from there? Yes. So years later, uh, I was uh, able to be a consultant to other NICUs around the country. So I had my day job still in the NICU, but I had the opportunity to teach other NICUs how to bring more developmental care to their babies in their NICU. And through that experience, I met a lot of therapists around the country doing what I was doing. And the one thing we had in common is that we couldn't talk to each other. You know, there was no way for us to, uh, we weren't a group of people. We weren't an official specialty. We were all clamoring for better resources and connection, but there was nowhere to get it. And so over time, I started to think, I wonder what it would look like uh, if we had an organization that was really niche and, uh, and focus just on therapy. So OT, PT, and speech therapists who work just in the NICU. And 
for a long time, I, and you probably know this, some of this story, but for a long time, I didn't really think that I should be the leader of that. I just thought, here's a great idea for someone else, you know, to go do. And uh, I kind of shopped for the leader. And uh, over time, it it came became apparent that that I should be the one to start that and and kind of take the leap from there. So I just, in the end, I knew that we all wanted to do better uh, for babies, and it seemed like we we had to do better and have better standards. And I also couldn't. I, I thought, you know, if I was a parent sitting by my baby's bedside in the NICU and someone like me came to see the baby, I would assume that that person was specially trained and prepared for working in that really particular environment. And at that time, back in, you know, 2008 or so, I, I knew that wasn't true, um, that some of us had really good training and, and some didn't because there weren't a lot of mentorship opportunities. So it felt like the best right thing to do for the babies and for our professions. So since you founded NAND, what, 14 years ago now, it's a global organization. You have members in over 20 different countries. How do you ensure the sharing of knowledge and best practices across different cultural and geographical contexts? It's a great question. So uh, we uh, have documents like our core scope of practice and things that we developed, our professional collaborative has developed uh, for neonatal therapists. And, and a lot of those types of documents and articles are free and open access so that there isn't a barrier, uh, no matter where you live in the world, to at least have the information. And then as far as our membership, um, we try to keep our membership costs you know, really low uh, so that, and then we fill the membership with uh, opportunities for education within it. So hopefully if, if, you know, if someone joins, uh, even if they do nothing else, but are a member of NANT, they will have hours and hours and hours of education included in that, that they can access online. So it takes away time zone issues, uh, takes away a lot of, uh, travel and access issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, we need to do better at a lot of things. We don't have things in multiple languages at this point. Uh, just one resource I think we have in English and Spanish. And so there are still a lot of, there's a lot of room for growth for sure. Um, and then we also, uh, we offer an international scholarship to our in-person national conference every year. And so we do try to uh, bring someone who, you know, people apply for that and, and we um, do offer scholar tuition scholarships for that. So we've had people from all over the world um, be able to attend our conferences and, and really, and it's so so inspiring to see what they do with that information. And they go back and yeah. sometimes are the only neonatal therapist in their entire country so far. And they're really bringing wow. that view and that skill set uh, to NICUs and then teaching other people in their own country from there. And it's, it's just amazing to watch. It's, it's really, really meaningful to me. Yeah. That's amazing. What do you see as the greatest challenge right now in the field of neonatal therapy? And how is NAT looking to address that? Ooh, um, I think there are a few challenges. Um, one kind of ongoing challenge in general is that we're this, we have this holistic developmental lens and we're bringing it into a very, uh, into an intensive care unit. And so there have always been, and, and will kind of probably continue to be just, uh, not issues really, but challenges with bringing that kind of lens into that very kind of high tech and medically oriented environment. And 
it's, it's fun to me. That's part of also the fun is, is the surprise of when you can make those things work well together. It's like magic to me. Um, Mm -hmm. but it, but that's, I think an ongoing challenge for all of us. Um, I would say, uh, funding for ongoing research in the, in bringing the science that backs up our practices, uh, funding for that and therapists Mm -hmm. who are trained in that specialty, um, to do research that contributes to that body of knowledge. So really trying to grow, um, both, you know, funding avenues, um, which Nant isn't doing personally, but which we're trying to help seek out and, um, and connect people with, and then, you know, highlighting those, that science at our national conference as well. So tying all those pieces together will continue to be important to, um, really support, uh, our practices. And then I think interpersonally, we, we do uh, one unusual thing about us as a professional organization is that we serve three different professions. OTPT and speech are separate degrees, separate professions. And yet we share a lot of common ground. Uh, we do share a lot of core, um, background and education, but we are distinctly unique as well. And so, uh, you know, I think we continue to learn just as we do in every other adult therapy and other avenues for sure, how to work together, right. how to best support the patient with our unique lenses. And I know for sure that the babies receive the best care when all three professions are available. And, and I've always had a passion for making sure that we're equally represented in that space. Nice. What is your vision for the future of NANT and neonatal therapy as a whole? (laughs) Oh, yeah. The five-year, the 10-year. I think, you know, my big, big vision is just that there are skilled neonatal therapists in every NICU in the world because I know Mm -hmm. the value of what we, yeah, what we bring to the, the medical team, to the families, and to the babies. And when, when we're able to really bring all of those skills, uh, we do bring a huge support for that to me, the ultimate vision, which is improving the developmental outcomes for babies and their quality of life, both their quality of life in that unit, like that day, (laughs) what they're experiencing right then we can help improve their experiences there make them less stressful, more supportive, better for their brain development and things, but also looking to their future. So therapists are looking at the moment they're in, but always thinking of how will this affect this child's brain and sensory development, you know, when they're in kindergarten, when they're 18, when they're an adult, you know? So I think uh, the big vision has to include that, you know, we are well prepared and skilled, but we are in every, at least access to us is in every unit in the, in the world. Wow. That's a beautiful vision. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to hold that for you as well. I love that. Thank you. So let's switch over to, to your book that came out last year. So I pretty much devoured this on audible on (laughs) numerous walks around my, my neighborhood, um, in the car, on my walks. It was truly incredible. Um, so if for our listeners, Tiny Humans, Big Lessons, please go purchase this book. You will not be disappointed. So what had what motivated you to write the book and what did you hope readers would take away when they read it? Well, first, thank you for reading it and, and for that feedback. That makes my day. Um, so motivating me for to write it. Uh, I, I've always loved sort of the intersection of healthcare and life and and like how mm-hmm. they're, you know, healthcare is such a microcosm of what's important when you really get down to the, 
very end of life or the beginning of life and all of that wrapped together, there's just so many important lessons there. And the NICU uh, was always that way to me. I mean, uh, just so many, so many lessons that become normal to us when we work there because, you know, we all become used to what we live in every day. But uh, when I kind of came to a place in my own life where I felt not like a premature baby, but I felt small, I felt fragile, I felt exhausted, I didn't have any energy and all the things that they must experience on, on their level really what got me out of that place and, and continues to help me in life were the same observational skills, the same uh, practices and the same uh, supports that we were providing babies in the NICU. And so I, when I finally, I didn't, I never put my own lens in the NICU on my own life until I really needed to. And then I was just blown away by how, how much symmetry there was and how many uh, really implementable lessons there were from what I was doing every day when I was working with babies to how I could weave that into my own life. And, and I had, it was so transformational in my own life. I had to share it with other people. Uh, And that's really why I wanted to share it in a, in a book Um, because it it was then the book would make it widely accessible instead of a talk or instead of something else. So, um, and I love to write. So it was a, a really fun experience for me. Um, Can you share one yeah. or two of those broader life lessons from the book? Uh, of course. Um, you know, one thing that I think if, you know, if you're listening and you feel like you are exhausted or um, burned out or depleted or not know where to go next. I mean, one, one of the first things that I learned was to protect my energy So for example, in the NICU, you know, everything we do with a really fragile, pretend this is a one or two pound baby or something, every single care interaction, whether it's just changing a diaper or any, any single thing can really steal uh, valuable calories and energy from that baby. And so we have to do care in a way that protects their energy. And so that energy can go toward their growth and not just be wasted Mm -hmm. in stress. Um, and so right. the way we do everything either contributes to that energy or, or steals it basically. And so one of the first things that I learned was just that in my own life, I started to look at what, what was I doing with my energy in a day? Like, where was it going? Even noticing where my energy was scattering to every day, all day. And then just like with the babies, just kind of objectively watching my own life and saying, wow, where's, where am I putting all this energy I wake up with and realizing a lot of it was kind of leaking out to things I didn't care about or stressful situations I couldn't do anything about, you know, so it just made me pay attention to the same things and then look at what could I do to protect my own energy. And that meant getting rid of things that weren't serving me. It meant, you know, only having things in my calendar that I had to do or love to do. Um, And Mm -hmm. over time, really transforming you know, how I spent and how I thought about and how I directed my energy. Uh, and just like with the babies, I learned that, you know, when I was protecting it, then I had more time and more literal energy to put toward my intentions, to put toward my goals of starting the organization and other things. 
So that was probably one of the first, uh, you know, real connections for me, uh, as far as using that information and using my lens. And then, um, you know, I'd say the, also we talk a lot in the NICU about alignment and when we're talking about alignment in the NICU, it's really about how babies are positioned and helping their muscles and joints grow in a way that's normal instead of being pinned down by gravity or, uh, having a lot of muscle tightness from, from not being able to move against gravity at first and things. So we're always trying to tuck them into what, if you just picture fetal position, um, like tucked in a little ball. So we would consider that alignment for a baby and we're always positioning them in that position so that they grow and develop normally. And I kind of took that alignment lesson too and thought, where is my life in alignment um, with the only the most important goals and priorities? And I pictured it like the baby, like I have a center, my spine down the middle. If I picture that same thing in my Mm -hmm. life, like my center and then what's important and only what's important and who is important. And I organize my life around those things. I always have a place to come back to. And, uh, so I was able to take some of those lessons and, and, um, make a real difference in my life. I love that. So as you and I know, change making can sometimes feel overwhelming, right? Especially when progress is slow and things are not going as quickly as we want. What advice would you have for our listeners for staying motivated and maintaining that energy and that intention and purpose in the face of challenges like that? Well, I will just say first that when I started NANT, it was really, really slow. So it sounds all shiny now to say more than 20 countries and this and that and all the things, but if you're thinking of doing something or you're already doing something, just know that it it was really slow in the beginning. And I was, you know, wondering, is this going to work? And can I really do this? And how, so, so in order to stay, Mm -hmm. so I think, you know, hang in there. If you really are passionate about your vision that, um, when you, uh, I would say take one literal moment at a time and try to look at, you know, being really present for that moment. And what do you want in your day? What energy do you want to bring to the day, to the work that you want to do? Um, Write down your vision for it and then write down how to get to that vision and be as, you know, uh, objective as you can uh, about your passion and, you know, break it down into little pieces. And, you know, I think when we look at the way the babies develop in the NICU, um, what we're doing in that moment, if to the outside person as a therapist, what I'm doing doesn't, you might have no idea what I'm actually doing with my hands or why I'm positioning a baby this way or how the slow movements help their brain development better than fast movements. And the things in isolation look really slow and unimportant oftentimes. But what happens is over time, when we put all those things together consistently, we show up for the practices that we say we want to do. We um, write down our goals every week. We do the send the email we don't feel like sending. You know, when we just keep doing those things, uh, that's how growth and development works. You know, so the outcome right. will we will get there, um, but it looks a lot slower in real time. And I think if we can have that expectation that you're not going to leave your desk every day or your office or wherever and feel like, woo, like I am on fire and this is happening and whatever. It, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot slower in, in real time, but 
I would say then look back at the end of a month and say, what did you do? At the end of a quarter and say, wow. And then you can really see the traction and development in what you're doing. But give yourself some grace that in the middle, in the, in the midst of it, it might feel slow, but hang on because it's going to be really cool uh, in retrospect. Yeah. And I think as women, we so often, you know, today is Thursday. If, if you or I said, you know, what were we doing Monday afternoon at two o'clock? We would really have to think about what that was. Mm-hmm. So capturing what those little micro wins are. So at the end of a month and the end of a quarter, you can look back and you really feel and see the progress because I think otherwise we just kind of go at warp speed and we just blow through the week and the month and you feel like you've accomplished nothing. When in reality, you've actually gotten quite a few things done. Yes. And I, I uh, still write down, uh, besides my regular calendar and all the things, I still write down every every week, like everything I'm going to do. I do it every Sunday or Monday. Uh-huh. And and it's it sounds silly maybe, but it's really helpful, one, to get it all out of my head. So there's less anxiety on Sundays and Monday mornings because uh, uh-huh. it's not in my frontal lobe anymore. It's on a piece of paper. And then... Uh, and then, yeah, crossing things off feels awesome. And then you can look back and I have probably, I don't know, I keep them all. So from the beginning of that, 14 years, I have of journals wow. with my schedule in them, with my weekly list of things to do. And they're, they're in my office here. <laughs> and, uh, and it's just such a cool, uh, you know, path to see when I look back. I, sometimes I can't even remember what something was about <laughs> from a long time ago, but, right. but it's, it's, uh, like you said, over time, those little things that we've divided up and checked off our list, they become something, uh, especially when we have like that anchor of the vision in mind the whole time. Yeah, absolutely. So you and I both know creating anything like this does not happen in a vacuum. Yes. So how have you enlisted the support of others in your mission around Nant? And what advice can you give our listeners about rallying people around their given cause, whatever that is for them? Um, so I might ask you to ask me the second part later, but the, um, so I don't forget. So the, um, as far as rallying, I, I have slowly and as I could, and as I could afford and as all the things, um, really build a great team around, around me and around Nant. So, uh, really looking to bring therapists who really has had that same passion and same for the mission that I do. So I have, you know, therapists around me that, are actually employees of NAT that are working with me in that mission and, and then non-clinical um, team members that are also working with us on that mission. And, and I think the key thing is one, getting people who are good at things that you're not good at because you already have you. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, and I, I'm very clear at what I'm not good at. You know, I think that I don't have any ego about what I'm not good at because I, I really need the people that are good at things that I'm not. And so that, you know, together we can not only think of the vision, but implement the vision and then, you know, carry these things through. And so finding that group of people who has a different skill sets uh, and bringing them together around a mission, however small that is. I mean, at first it was just me and one other person and, uh, for, for a long time, it felt like, and, uh, and then slowly bringing other people in. And then we've been able to, we have a lot of volunteer committees that, you know, when people are, are really interested in a mission, 
you know, there a lot of times people are very generous with their time and their abilities. And we have a lot of volunteers to help us with our conference and uh, with, you know, creating those papers and documents that Nant puts into the world about standards of care and things. So, so there's a lot of ways to engage people. And then our membership, you know, our members are awesome and they're uh, so committed to the NICU and, and to each other, which has been really fun to see, you know, this, the energy of that community in with each other. So giving them ways to connect with each other uh, furthers the mission in a way I can't even always see, but I can feel it. And I can feel it when we're together in person, the conference, it like blows the roof off. (laughs) Um, Their, you know, collective energy is really contagious. So, and then I always have had, almost always I've had a mentor. Uh, I feel like I really benefit from, yeah, it just, I, I always want someone to ask my, you know, individually myself, somebody who's further ahead on some path than I am on to say, what do you think of this? And what am I missing? And how do I make, what, where do I go from this challenge or mistake? And I think that has been invaluable. It's saved me time, saved me money, um, and really helped me, you know, forge a clearer path forward instead of feeling more scattered. So I love having a mentor, whether they're official or not, I would look for people in your space that are willing to give you some time or be paid. You pay them for your time, either one and, Mm -hmm. uh, and get that input. It's, it's really important. I think to, to have someone you can go to as the leader. Right. Before we went live with the interview, you mentioned a quote that your daughter had given you. Can you share that? Because I think it's so applicable here. Yes, for sure. So the um, when several years after starting out, my daughter gave me a Christmas present where it had the the night sky in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is where I'm from, on the day that I founded Nant. It had all the stars, which was really cool. And the quote that was under it, which I don't know who to attribute to. So if anyone knows, please tell me. But it says, you can have the greatest mission statement in the world but it's pointless. And yes, you, unless you have people who are on a mission and it, that really hit me because it's just true. You know, um, we can have, you can build a, an organization or cause and have a fantastic mission, but it will not get off the ground without people with you who are on that same mission. And, and it's a, it's the best feeling probably I've ever had to see what that looks like in real time. And, uh, so looking early for those people in your life and, and really supporting them uh, along the way is, is extremely valuable. I completely agree. So the work that you do working with these tiny humans demands a lot of empathy and emotional resilience. How do you cultivate those qualities and what advice would you give our listeners about developing their own emotional resilience when tackling tough social issues that matter to them? Because some of them are challenging. It could be domestic violence. It could be child abuse. It could be racial inequality. It could be the environment. So how do you foster that emotional resiliency to keep going? I'd say a a few ways um, to foster it and cultivate it in yourself and in other people although we of course can't control any other, any other humans, but, um, but I'd say, uh, you know, one really important thing that sounds, 
you know, so commonplace, but we don't do it enough is just really believing that taking care of ourselves isn't selfish. I mean, I think that if we, if we, if we as the person on the mission or leading the mission or being behind the mission, if we are depleted, we will not have that energy to do the mission. Uh, You won't have the stamina or the endurance it's going to take when you get those blows that are um, really personal and uh, or the experiences that are, um, you know, so uh, sometimes traumatic, even, you know, depending on what arena that you're in um, to be able to have to dig somewhere and find even the energy to just pause and say, what can I do? Can I do anything in this moment? So I'd say the first thing is just being able to take care of ourselves and whatever that looks like for you. Um, but things that really refuel you and having them as part of your real life all the time, both inside and outside this, you know, initiative is taking care of ourselves. So you have the fuel because otherwise it doesn't matter. Your mission will go nowhere. Um, or when they really need you, you will not be able to rise to that occasion. So I'd say that's, that's number one. But when we find ourselves in these really difficult places emotionally, um, I mean, one thing I try to do is just remember that, uh, whoever that situation is with, I try to just pre-decide what energy I'm going to bring to that situation. I try to have one Mm. thought before I react. So instead of a lot of times they're real reactive situations and I try to just say, wait, pause, this feels, I feel really emotional about this. I feel really, you know, and, and instead of just sending the email or doing the thing or making a call or saying something on social media, whatever the reaction might be, I try to always just pause first because there's a lot of, uh, kind of natural intelligence in the pause gives us time to say, what do I, if I could be anyone for this moment, for the person I'm sitting across from, for the people I'm about to speak to, for the fundraising, who do I want to be and what energy do I want to bring? And, and we, so in order to do that, at least for me, I have to pause first and think I I do have the ability to choose how I'm going to show up in this situation. And the more often I was able to practice that and Practice is the strong word. <laughs> uh, I was not good at it, you know. Um, but that with time and practice, you know, I it really was self-sustaining to be able to do that instead of, you know, like for example, during COVID, we had a lot of challenging, like everybody did, um, in their own ways. But um, we had a lot of challenges just with events and being in person or not or this and what were we doing? And a lot of people who were not happy and, you know, it was a lot to deal with and everyone wanted an answer tomorrow and everyone had a different thing that they needed. And, and they were real things. I mean, people were of course dealing with very real life and death things and stressful and job and all the things. And so I remember my vice president and I like reeling for a minute, right. About all those things. And then at some point in like wanting to have the replies and things and what are we going to say and what are we going to do? And at some point we just said, wait a minute, you know, what can we actually control in this moment? What is our highest intention for this situation, for the people that are in it with us and that we're serving? 
and, and what can we actually do? You know, and, and so giving yourself permission. That's really to, powerful. Yeah, it, it ended up being saving us, not saving. I don't mean saving Nant. I don't mean saving the situation, but saving our own selves, our energy. Like we were so distraught and we felt for everyone and we knew we were making hard decisions and we didn't want to hurt anyone. So, uh, just that pause and controlling the controllables and deciding what we could do moving forward with that highest intention and doing that over and over, uh, I think is a constant lesson because you know how things are, they show up differently the next time (laughs) you swear you learn that lesson and then it looks different the next time. So, um, (laughs) Uh, just to keep us on our toes, but we, uh, you know, and I just remember that every person I'm talking to is showing up where they're from, you know, with the situation they're in from their perspective. And so it to be compassionate for myself, if the more compassionate I am to my own self, the more compassionate I capacity I have for other people. And if I'm really hard on myself and I have no self-compassion, I likely won't find real honest compassion for other people either. I was just going to say one quick thing about that, uh, that um, I think I really learned from, from the NICU was that we can have the very best intentions and we can do all the quote right things and these things still fall apart sometimes. And to understand that our intentions aren't guaranteed. It's just how we keep showing up for them that matters. Um, so I think there can be a lot of shame around like, but I intended well and I did all the right things and then just, it didn't work. And I think mm-hmm. um, that in those moments, that's where that self-compassion comes in or, or for the people that were on the team that helped you and it still didn't work is we can just say, sit in, sit in that with them and with yourself and, and have that compassion and know that it doesn't always work. We can just keep showing up. How can our listeners advocate for better neonatal care and therapies in their local healthcare systems or on a broader policy level? In their local healthcare, um, I'd say sometimes there are things at the state level, if we're paying attention in, in your own state, that may or may not um, welcome feedback from constituents in the state about uh, maternal health care and access to care and things. So I, I would say to, in general, for all mother-baby care to just kind of pay attention to those issues. Um, as far as if you find yourself or your own child or your grandchild or your friend's child in a NICU somewhere, you know, just asking, you know, do you have neonatal therapists on staff and, you know, can I meet them? At what point do they get involved? And, and just really asking the question, uh, and, and most, you know, NICUs in the U S will have those services for sure. Um, and Mm -hmm. so, uh, just advocating in, in that sense and being willing to partner with the therapist in the unit and, uh, and learn from them. And, uh, and they love connecting parents and babies. So it's a, usually a great union. Um, and then, you know, nationally, there are policies. Um, we, Nant is part of a national coalition for infant health and, uh, that, organization, you know, really helps advocate for infant health policy. And so Nanta as an organization is, is part of that. And, and there are a lot of uh, components of that. So if that's something that you're interested in, uh, sort of in the more political sense or advocacy at that national level, 
you can check out that National Coalition for Infant Health um, has a lot of different prongs that can be helpful for supporting services in the NICU. Fantastic. Sue, thank you so much. This was amazing. Well, thank you for having me. And um, I'm excited to listen to more of your podcasts myself. So I'm inspired by what you're doing all over the world as well. And I'm excited to uh, connect with your listeners. Thank you. So we will have a link in the show notes to Sue's bio, Nant, her book, resources, etc. And we will see you back here next time. Take care, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to Women Igniting Change. I know creating change matters to you. If you enjoy what we talk about on the show, please take one action today and share it with someone who could benefit from listening. Until next time, keep standing up and speaking out for what matters.